Verse 15. So Yahweh sent a plague through Israel from the morning until the completion of the appointed time. 70,000 men died from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is all the way in the north. Beersheba is all the way in the south. When the angel extended his hand to destroy Jerusalem, Yahweh relented from his judgment. He told the angel who was killing the people, that's enough, stop now. Now Yahweh's angel was near the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Now the threshing floor of Arana is just a few yards north of um, David's palace. Same city, right there in Jerusalem, just the next hill up. So this is like saying two blocks over. That's where it stopped. That's significant because Arana has a threshing floor, and David's going to buy it. Chronicles tells us that it's on the threshing floor of Arana that the Holy of Holies of the temple is going to be built. Now what's interesting is exactly what David said about God came true. I want to fall into the hands of God because he's merciful and compassionate. And God gets to Jerusalem, and God cannot bear punishing his children anymore. And he stops. God sees a repentant people. He sees a broken heart of David. He sees his own people suffering, and his heart can't take it anymore. In his grace, he stops the plague short. He doesn't allow it to come. When he saw the angel who was destroying the people, so David actually then sees the angel. God allows him to actually see the angel. Now, does he know it's an angel? I don't know, but he sees something. David said to Yahweh, Look, it is I who have sinned and done this evil thing. As for these sheep, what have they done? Attack me and my family. Now, that's huge. Because not only is David convicting himself, repenting of it like a man after God's own heart, but he's now willing to die in the place of his nation. And that's why God relents. But then we're kind of given a side shot and we're told how God is going to relent. You see, God is going to relent, but atonement for sins hasn't really been fully paid yet. God said for sins to be fully atoned, I have to bring a plague all the way from Dan to Beersheba. But the plague has only gotten to Jerusalem, which means the full punishment has not come out. So God is going to command David to make sacrifices to finish the atonement. What God is saying is like, I needed to punish you to be just, but now I'm cutting my justice short by forgiving you and stopping the plague. But in order to atone for that lack of justice, you have to sacrifice animals. Just like Romans 3 says that God overlooked all the sins of all the past and he delayed his justice on sin because the blood of animals and goats cannot take away sins. And he waited to pour it all out on his son. God should have sent us all to hell for our sins. But he delayed his justice so he could pour out his full wrath on Jesus instead. So that in Jesus' death, the mercy of God is satisfied, we live. And the justice of God is satisfied, somebody dies. God is saying right here is justice has to be fully carried out. So the only way to fully carry it out is an animal sacrifice. But even that's not enough, according to Romans 3. But that will at least point you to the coming sacrifice one day that will finally satisfy God's justice. And this is why Paul says that Christ is the propitiation for our sin. He satisfies God's need for wrath and justice on us in a way that nothing else ever has. So that's what we're going to get in sight now. There has to be a sacrifice to finish this justice. 
Verse 18, So Gad went to David that day and told him, Go up and build an altar for Yahweh on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up as God instructed him to do, according to Yahweh's instructions. When Arana looked out and saw the king and his servants approaching him, he went out and bowed to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to your servant? And David replied, To buy from the, from you the threshing floor so I can build an altar for Yahweh so the plague may be removed from my people. Arana told David, My lord the king may take whatever he wishes and offer it. Look, here are the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing sledges and the harnesses for the wood. I, the servant of my lord the king, give it all to the king. Arana also told the king, May Yahweh your God show you favor. So Arana, we're told, is a Jebusite. The Jebusites were those horrible, evil people in Jerusalem that David had to conquer. In order to take a they were the ones marked for destruction according to the book of Deuteronomy. Yet Arana says, May Yahweh bless you. He's converted. And Arana says, I will give the king whatever he wants. You don't have to pay for the land. You don't even have to pay for the animals, for the sacrifice. You don't even have to pay for the wood. I'll give it all to you. This is the incredible faith of Arana. Arana is a foreigner who was so evil, his people, that God said they had to be completely wiped off the face of the earth. The law demanded Arana to die. But Arana's faith allowed the law to be trumped with the grace of God. Now notice, I talked about this, there's a theme going out through these books. Uriah the Hittite was more faithful than David. Ittai, the Gittite, is the one who convicted David and got him to come back to his faith when he was running away from his son. Arana, the Jebusite, is showing himself to be more faithful in understanding God more than David is. There's this theme that's starting in the book of Samuel and is going to become very prominent in the book of Kings where foreigners are actually responding to God with a greater faith and devotion than the actual Israelites themselves are. And once again, a foreigner is the one who's orchestrating David's coming back to God. God is very commonly has been using foreigners to convict David or to grow his faith or to give him a theology lesson about who Yahweh is. And the irony is, the foreigners are giving theology lessons to the people of God with the word of God? Because that's the way it's going to be. And Elisha is really going to demonstrate this. And this is why Jesus will say, I tell you the truth, the foreigners are going to respond more to me than you Israelites are. And I have come, there is more faith in the foreigners and the Gentiles than there is in the whole nation of Israel. And that made the Israelites so angry, they tried to take him to a cliff and throw him off dead. How dare you accuse the chosen people of God of being less knowledgeable about who God is than the foreigners? That's how far they have fallen. So far, they even tried to kill God when he taught him a lesson. So he says, I'll give it all to you. But the king said to Aaron, no, I insist on buying it from you. I will not offer to Yahweh my God burnt sacrifices that cost me nothing. This is the heart of David. David gets that true sacrifice, true atonement must cost you something. Because a sacrifice without a sacrifice is not a sacrifice. And David gets that. This is what the narrator wants you to see. The narrator wants you to see a David who sins, 
but a David who is self-convicted. A David who turns back to God and cries out to God. A David who goes and he gets God so well that he wants God to punish him than anything else. A David that has the eyes to see what is really going on enough that he's actually able to see the angel of Yahweh. A David who's willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of his people. A David who gets that real sacrifice and real devotion to God must cost you something. This is the final four or five points on what it means to be a man or woman of God after God's own heart. And the narrator's ending the book with these things and saying, this is what you are to look like. Whatever addictions you struggle with, whatever product of the culture that you are, whatever we all struggle with that because that's the culture we live in, whatever sins you've committed, whatever mistakes you keep doing over and over again, the key to our faith, the key to being a man or woman after God's own heart, is someone who loves God and hates sin enough that when we're convicted, we actually repent. It actually bothers us. We want to make amends. A people that we get what God's character is. That even though I know I deserve to be punished, and I know I deserve consequences, and, and I feel like this law might be a little harsh sometimes because I haven't been able to obey in this area my entire life, and I'm wondering how much longer it's going to be before I get it. And it's very easy to say, God, you're not fair and you're not just. This is way too hard for me. We still say, but ultimately God is good. And I'd rather be in his hands than in anybody else's hands. And that I get that God is gracious more than he is judgmental. A man or woman after God's own heart is someone who's willing to sacrifice their own life, their own emotions, their own physical energy, their sleep, their resources, their mental stability for the sake of other people if it means that they can have a better life than you. A man or woman after God's own heart is someone who gets that true devotion, true repentance, true love for God must cost you something. And that your reputation is not more than your relationship with God. Your money is not more important to you than your relationship with God. Your family is not more important to you than your relationship with God. Your success, your power, your comfort... That's what it means to me. And all of your brokenness, and all of your addictions, and all of your flaws, and all of your, oh my gosh, again. What God is really looking at and says, I am pleased with you, is that heart that is so soft and so broken for God and gets that God, I'm not always making God first, but in the depths of my heart, I want God to be the most important thing to me. And I'll do what I can with what I have and the culture that I live in to do that. And that's what the narrator's ending with. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 pieces of silver, which is a lot of money. It's way more than what it's worth. Then David built an altar for Yahweh and there they offered the burnt sacrifices and peace offerings and Yahweh accepted the prayers for the land and the plague was removed from Israel. Samuel ends on an incredibly negative note. This is the chosen king of God. This is the man after God's own heart. And I don't really want to live in a nation like that, ruled by a man like that. 
There's been a lot of horrible, evil things that have happened. And remember, God made a promise to Abraham and then Judah and then David that I am going to restore the garden through you people. I'm going to lift up a king that will be righteous and just and will deliver you into the kingdom of God one day. And if anybody was going to get your hopes up and think, this is it, it is David. But then David's a scumbag. And David allows pride and power to corrupt him. And he brings his entire nation to civil war and bankruptcy and and I mean moral, spiritual bankruptcy, and disasters and destructions, and and your heart just falls. And just like you thought Moses was it, and then he fails you miserably in his anger as he's striking the rock. Just as you think, well, maybe Joshua's it, and then he fails you miserably when he's doing his own thing and making treaties with people he shouldn't, and and then you're thinking, okay, David, of all people, this guy. The Bible's really been hyping him up before David even comes to the picture. For 16 chapters, the narrator's hyping him up. And you're like, this is the hype? <laughs> the guy's miserable. And the negative note is, Israel's not anywhere closer to the kingdom of God being restored, the garden being restored, than they ever were before. In fact, it feels like we're worse off. That's the negative note. But... There is one little glimmer of hope, and that is, yet despite that, David was a man after God's own heart. And despite that, he got a lot of things about Yahweh. And Yahweh accepted him despite his sins. And despite that, the book ends with, and God lifted his judgment. God lifted his judgment from Israel. And that's the tension we wrestle with, because here's the point that the Bible is going to be making over and over and over again. That ultimately speaking, Yahweh is the most sovereign being in the entire world. But Yahweh has chosen us to be his people, to rule over his planet, and to make a garden. But the other point that the Bible is making is that you are horrible, evil sinners that constantly fail over and over and over again to get anywhere close to what God wants you to be to restore anything of what God is hoping for one day. But at the same time, God is still gracious and perseveres you, perseveres for you. He makes promises after promises. I mean, we're on our sixth promise right now, covenant. And he keeps pursuing you, he keeps showing grace, he keeps tolerating you because one day he knows that he's going to bring you all back one day. And his love is that powerful. And every book that we go through ends on those two notes. That God has made all these promises, but they still haven't happened yet. That we're a horrible, evil scumbag. Again, here's another story of all my sins. But yet God hasn't given up on us. And now every book will end incredibly negative with a little bit of hope every single time. And there's one book that is going to break that. And that is the Gospels. Because Jesus is going to become the man who is able to be what humans cannot be. And he's going to be the God that's going to fulfill the promises of God to make what we couldn't make happen. And everything's driving you towards that. That's the main theology that's driving you towards that. So in conclusion, the book of Judges end with a total sense of hopelessness. When you end that book, you think Israel's totally doomed. That was one that didn't really have any positive note at all. There was no, you're just like, that's it. Okay. 
But it ends with this repeating phrase, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And remember going all the way back to the beginning of Samuel, we talked about the point that that had two levels to it. On one level, the point was that they weren't making Yahweh their king. And that's why everybody followed their heart, just did it have their way. They weren't making Yahweh their king. But the other sense too is that there was no Deuteronomic king. There was no human that was so submitted to God, so willing to surrender themselves completely to the ultimate kingship of who Yahweh is, that on the surface they looked no different than any other Israelite. They were not higher or more powerful than anybody else. Yet they were so powerfully committed to Yahweh that Yahweh was able to use them in such a way that made them a powerful leader. Because remember back in the garden, yes, Yahweh is the ultimate sovereign God, but he has chosen humans to be his king and queen, to represent him. And so that there is no king functions on two levels. It functions on the Elohim that is the sovereign God over all creation, but also functions on the level that he originally wanted Adam and Eve to be king and queen. He wants us to be king and queen. And so there was no them making Yahweh as their ultimate God, and there was no human that was doing that that they became the Deuteronomic king. So that's the negative note that judges then leads us into it. And what God does, he establishes the prophet. And the prophet becomes the link between heaven and earth. The prophet becomes the one who speaks the will of God to the people to hopefully educate them, teach them that they would know the will of God so well that finally maybe somebody like a Deuteronomy king could come up. But the people still don't get it. And they fail miserably as they pursue Saul. And Saul failed miserably as he was never, ever, ever willing to submit himself to the ultimate kingship of God. In some ways, he committed fewer sins than David, but he never submitted to the ultimate kingship of Yahweh. And in that sense, the nation was doomed. But the narrator then presents you with David. And David becomes that conundrum. Because in some sense, you realize this is what it means to submit yourself to the ultimate sovereignty of Yahweh. This is what a man or woman after God's own heart really looks like. And in that sense, this is it. This is the Deuteronomic king. This is the restoration of the kingdom of God. This is the bringing of the Garden of Eden. This is the crushing of all the nations. In fact, he crushed all the nations more than anybody else. And your hopes get higher and higher. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, but there's this pride and this womanizing and and the, this violence in him and and then he fails miserably too and your hopes are all dashed and crushed and so the, the, the book of Samuel is making this point that all humans will fail to be what Yahweh wants you to be to bring the kingdom of God one day but at the same time look at David and learn what it means to be a man after God's own heart a woman after God's own heart because that heart attitude, that faith, that's what allow you to rest in the grace of God and survive and live in the land until God one day actually ends on a positive note of bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Because it is not our obedience that will bring the kingdom of God. It is not our worthiness. It is not our awesomeness. It is the fact that we have surrendered to Yahweh put our faith in him and we're grabbing onto the grace of God as tightly as we possibly can and we're writing the grace of God out to bring us into the kingdom of God one day. And that looks like 
a man or woman who is so bothered by their sin, they repent, confess, they're willing to sacrifice their well-being for greater things of God. They're willing to sacrifice themselves for others. They get who God is, and they get that it will cost them everything, the kingdom of God. But what they lose is nothing compared to what they will gain. And that's the message of Samuel. So, in conclusion, as you look at your life, where are you and where are you not surrendering to the ultimate kingship of Christ and God? What needs to be crucified and given to him? And where are you succeeding? Anyway, as you go through the Bible, ask, what does this say about my lack of surrender to Jesus as king? As you go through the Bible, what does this say about what I do with the areas that I am surrendering to God? And how can God use those? And that's what we, the narrator leaves you with until you get to the depressing note of kings. Any questions, comments? Yahweh, we thank you for the awesome God that you are. That a God that is beyond our understanding a God that frankly confuses us sometimes, makes us ask a lot of questions, but despite all those theological issues, a reputation and a character that constantly comes out as mind-blowingly loving and just and trustworthy and faithful, and allow us to focus on that. We thank you that you are an incredibly just God, that you're a God that hates sin and will not tolerate evil and you will deal with it. You will deal with it in the lives of the people around us that are part of the world and the culture who seek to dominate other people, to destroy them and to gain their own power. But you'll also be just in our own lives as you conquer the strongholds of sin and addictions and selfishness and pride that we hold on to. We thank you that you're a God that is not buddy-buddy with us and overlooks us as we lead ourselves in destruction because you don't deal with our sin. But we also thank you that you are an amazing God of grace and love and compassion and mercy, that you're gentle with us as you judge us and rebuke us and discipline us. And we pray that we would see that God and we'd be blown away by the grandness of it, the complexity of it, the mystery of it, but also that there's enough of it that's simple enough that we can understand it and fall in love with it. And allow us to have hearts that are like David. Allow us to pursue you like David. But also, we have something that David didn't have, and that's this Holy Spirit. And give us the ability to surrender to the Holy Spirit, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, so that our behavior can actually be redeemed, transformed, sanctified into matching our hearts. But most importantly, Lord, we pray that we would have hearts that are after yours. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat>